From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour will be made tomorrow at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. Reverend Lane Mayreed Campbell will be delivering the Christian Faith and LGBTQ Plus Experience Lecture. And the Reverend's focus will be on building a genderqueer ministry. It comes just three days after the crowd at CPAC cheered a call to eradicate transgenderism in this country. CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Conference. One of the weekend speakers was Michael Knowles, a commentator for The Daily Wire. Knowles said that kids are being confused or groomed and harmed over questions of their gender. And he concluded, quote, for the good of society, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely, end quote. The notion of ministry supporting genderqueer congregants, let alone genderqueer priests or reverends or imams or rabbis. Well, houses of worship have often been difficult places for LGBTQ Americans to find support, but not always, of course. And this hour, we'll talk about what this week's lecture means for this moment and for our city. And I'll make a pledge to listeners from the outset of this conversation over the weekend when listeners heard the subjects for today's show. I heard from some about their own experiences. What I'm hearing is more nuanced or more thoughtful than so much of what we see on cable news or at CPAC or elsewhere. But I think reasonable people have felt a bit of paralysis over both how to receive new information or how to ask fair questions. Everything seems so charged these days. In November, the New York Times ran a story consulting with the medical community about possible risks of uh, gender blocking therapy. And there was a lot of blowback for that, too. So I know that I, uh, this can feel fraught. My pledge is to try to have a productive, kind, and fair conversation. Bigotry is not welcome today or ever on this program. Good faith questions and a pursuit of sound information will be respected. Numerous states have pursued legislation to reduce or stop the practice of gender-focused care. Texas is aimed to criminalize it. The debate over how best to serve children is not just happening here. As NPR has reported, Sweden's National Health Service determined recently that gender-related medical care for young people should only be provided in exceptional cases when children have clear distress over their gender, known as dysphoria. All adolescents who receive treatment will be required to be enrolled in clinical trials in order to collect more data on side effects and long-term outcomes. Finland took a similar stance last year, tightening their approach to gender care after years of a more open and giving protocol. Let's talk about where we are and where we go from here. Our guests this hour include the Reverend who is giving that lecture tomorrow. Reverend Lane Mayreed Campbell is back with us. They're minister at First Universalist Church of Rochester. Reverend, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. And on the line with us, let me welcome Dr. Kashandra D. King. Uh, Kashandra is Assistant Professor of Practical Theology and Director of Black Religious Thought and Life at Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. Uh, Kashandra, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. And Britton Hargers is with us, a community advocate, founder of Next Generation Men of Transition. Welcome back to the program, Britton. Thanks for being with us. No problem. Great to be here, Evan. Um, Reverend, let me just kind of start with you before we kind of get into what you're going to be talking about this week and um, what you hope the community maybe can gain from that lecture. You know, I, I, I look at what was said at CPAC, and I mm -hmm. see some of the rhetoric and how um, sort of politically hot and charged. And I, I wonder what this all feels like from your perspective right now. Well, you know, it's an interesting deal. I mean, for me uh, right now, just personally, uh, the way that it feels uh, is it feels uh, really scary a lot of the time. Uh, to hear this rhetoric happening nationally, to see what's going on in Oklahoma, Tennessee, Arkansas, uh, Ohio, Idaho. I mean, the, the list is long. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of sense of um, uh, what I've been hearing from, from some friends of being just exhausted, uh, being tired out by, by a lot of this, and holding really deep concern, of course, uh, for transgender children, for trans adults. Um, and uh, and also just some really deep rage. So rage. if I'm being honest, you know, about what I, how I'm feeling personally. Also, like as a person who has a fairly public life as a trans person, feeling a lot of pressure to say something and to hold space while I'm also sitting with, you know, my own fears, responses, uh, reactions. So um, 
how how often because you've worked in um, you said youth ministry oh as yes well. yeah yeah I worked in youth ministry uh, for five years in Columbus Ohio before I came here and um, during that time I worked with a program for uh, transgender children and youth and also worked with um, a place called Kaleidoscope Youth Center which was an LGBTQ uh, youth center in Columbus and I worked with trans youth there too uh, more in the high school range and how often are, are kids you know when you say you're kind of feeling pressure to sort of because you're kind of a public you're a public yeah, figure yeah. Uh, you know to kind of talk about your own story do kids want to know do you, do you do they want to talk about this more than perhaps they did when your career began I mean, what are you seeing yeah well i mean um the youngest trans person that i ever met was five years old and um for sure i mean i think kids have a much easier time talking about gender and different questions around gender than adults do. Um, and I certainly saw uh, kids wanting to talk about gender, especially, you know, we're looking at uh, Women's History Month right now. We're looking at a lot of different uh, pieces around gender. I mean, the kids that I worked with, um, for many of them, uh, we actually used to do a, a really cool political action that we called it, where we would take these uh, selfies for justice. And I shared some stories with our kids about trans discrimination, and they made like these beautiful pictures and phrases of encouragement for trans people and took their pictures with them. And um, we put them all over our church's social media page at, at my last place. And um, I, I find that kids generally are much more accepting uh, than, than adults are sometimes around gender. Do you think that's because a lot of adults grew up in these con the concepts of gender fluidity, being genderqueer, um, uh, um, transgender, where a lot of the terminology was not there at all? If it was there, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was a punchline in movies if it ever showed up at all. Sure. But, but for a lot of the, I want to say more nuanced, everything sort of has its place, but a lot of the terminology didn't exist for adults mm -hmm. growing up. So I think it's, it can be very new, can be jarring or, you know, I, I guess uncomfortable. How, do you think that's why for adults? It, it's well, I, I would also up? say that I think that gender fluidity, gender queerness, um, gender expansiveness, transgender um, folks, uh, our transgender community have, I mean, we've been here. We've always been here. Um, but I think more, uh, less and less we're, we're, we are we willing to remain closeted and less and less are we willing to uh, remain sort of in our own communities. Um, and so I think, yeah, we are seeing certainly more conversation happening publicly around uh, transgender issues, gender fluidity, um, gender queerness. Um, some of what I'll talk about tomorrow in my lecture is about sort of the history of uh, trans and gender queer um, expression in religious leadership. I'll be touching on it really briefly. There's a lot of folks that have done much more research than I have. But, you know, the idea that, like, we've always been here. We've always been healers. We've always been here. We've always been in religious communities. Um, and, um, you know, transgender uh, people, genderqueer people, we're not something new. But I think um, the more public dialogue about us uh, is, is fairly new. Britton Hardridge, what are you saying right now? <laughs> oh wow, Evan, to be honest, um turmoil, fear. Um mm -hmm. one thing that the reverend said that I can stand on is wow, just that that personal fear um and just how to deal with it and how to live with it. Um waking up and seeing um Michael Knowles comment, watching the videos, um the hate is is insane. Um and it's crazy because you know like this soil um is birthed in hate and to actually just see it continually like growing um at rapid rates um it, it's very terrifying especially for self um mm -hmm. you, you don't even know what safety looks like anymore mm -hmm. um Kishundra king can i ask you as well to kind of weigh in on how you see the current landscape absolutely i think there well at least for a divinity school, we have an ethical and moral responsibility to respond theologically. And that is a part of the reason why we have the LGBTQ plus experience lectures to begin with and how we prepare students and other religious leaders theologically and multi-religiously to recognize, analyze, and intervene in all of these forms of violence and oppression that target LGBTQ plus persons. Uh, and that 
question on the um, theological sort of responsibility and um, the underpinnings of the message tomorrow. Can you talk a little bit more, Reverend? Um, you know, you said that there's other folks who've done a lot of scholarly work, and mm-hmm. I, I understand the humility there, but, you know, you're certainly going with a message that you want the community to hear, and, and uh, at the risk of taking all that thunder away from you, <laughs> what do you want people to gain from that this week? Well, so what I'm going to be talking about is um, are some very sort of uh, practical pieces about how to gender queer our ministries and our religious leadership in our communities and in our congregations, uh, recognizing that gender queering uh, ministry is for all of us. It's not just for those of us who identify as as trans or gender queer. Um, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, the ways that we have always been Uh, healers, ways that we have always been uh, present in spiritual communities and religious communities, and also talking a bit about how um, uh, oftentimes uh, religious communities and access to uh, spiritual communities has been stolen from us, actively, actively thefted from genderqueer and trans people, and um, what we can do to really center our, you know, religious communities and our spiritual communities. uh, around the trans experience and around gender queer experiences. So, how do you feel it's going to be received? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm very interested to see. Um, I the the community is invited, and so would love to to see a, a variety of perspectives there. I know, um, you know, there are times when um, when talking about these issues, where um, at least I've seen at times in my ministry ways that folks um, immediately kind of get defensive and wonder whether or not uh, they're going to lose their congregation or their community, whether or not we're becoming uh, too trans of a community or too queer of a community. Um, so I think that's usually where I experience the pushback in, in religious settings. Um, and, you know, would be interested to see uh, what some of the feedback will be in our community. I, honestly, I really haven't been in conversation with a lot of um, religious leaders here in Rochester around where they stand around LGBTQIA issues, and specifically with the focus on the, the T and the Q there. Yeah, and Kishendra, um, you know, certainly Colgate, Rochester Crozier Divinity School, in hosting this lecture and in, you know, standing behind your words on this program, is, is making a statement, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to bifurcate the way clergy or ministry uh, handles social issues. I, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but if we are looking at the kind of opposition that we often see from the pulpit on issues like this, and there is l- loud and powerful opposition mm-hmm. coming in a lot of quarters, um, what, what message would you want them to hear from, from Colgate, Kashendra? Um, I would encourage audience members and participants to be open to the complexities that we're wrestling with because we offer these lectures and opportunities to engage to a wide audience that has varying perspectives and understandings on different social issues and contexts. And we want to create that space so that the community can engage with tough conversations together. And so really it is a practice of being hospitable to people who have different um, beliefs, understandings, and interpretations, and being willing to engage with that complicated and complex process. Britton, when you think of the religious leadership community as, as a monolith, I mean, it's certainly not a monolith. Uh, we, we see a lot of different viewpoints, but generally when you think about sort of organized religion, do you find that to be a place of comfort or a place of... Uh, of threat to you? <laughs> That's a funny question. So currently, um, it depends on where, where we're standing. Um, I really appreciate um, Reverend Lane May Reed creating space um, such as the First Universalist um, because, you know, like for me, um, I come from a very um, Pentecostal uh, Baptist ba- background where who I am as a person um, is not accepted. Um, so those those spaces can really be um, a threat and be very harmful, but I am thankful for spaces such as this that Colgate creates because, you know, these are important, cre- these are important questions that need answers and those spaces have to be created so that we are not harmed like we are humans of spirit and we should be able to express our spirits um our spirituality um live in our spirituality safely um and amongst other um, amongst other folks as well i want to read an email and, and 
Reverend, I'll, well, I would like all three of our guests to weigh in. And Reverend Lane May Reed has been working with kids, with congregations, and families. And so mm-hmm. um, David, uh, who sent me an email, said, you're probably not going to read this whole email. It's too long. I'll read it, David. Let, let's talk about this. David says, I'm the parent of a child who is pushing for hormone blockers. My child is 12. They are struggling with their mental health, and I'm trying to be a loving parent every step of the way. I've never felt so much uncertainty as a parent about what to do. My first course of action is to provide consistent love, unconditional love. My child is beautiful and individual and amazing. When I heard the kinds of things that the speakers said this weekend at CPAC, I wanted to scream. Our kids don't deserve to be bullied and targeted, and that's going to get worse. Here's where my struggle comes in. My child is biologically female. As a young girl, she had a range of interests. She was athletic and she liked sports. She liked to mix it up with her male cousins. She was neither stereotypically tomboyish, if that's still a common term, or stereotypically girly. And I thought that was great. Her friend group has been, I would call it, a questionable influence on her. Her friends got cell phones very young for my taste. They developed what I would call an addiction to social media. Their grades have started to suffer. There's clearly some mental health challenges going on. Two of the girls in my child's friend group announced they were transitioning this past fall. Within three months, my child was telling me that they were also planning to transition. I expressed love and openness. When the subject of surgery or hormone blockers came up, I explained that we would need some time and careful consideration before going down any of those roads. I did not close the door to anything, nor did I promise anything at this point. Meanwhile, my child's friends began shouting at anyone who used their previous pronouns. One of my child's friends has changed pronouns several times in six months and gets sharp and downright nasty if someone makes a misstep. I dread making a mistake. Catching someone seems to be a sport. My child has occasionally shown the same tendencies. All throughout, I have said, I'll use the name you prefer and the pronouns that you prefer. I will try to stay current, and I love you no matter what. One of my child's friends says that her parents have approved hormone treatment, and my child is getting increasingly angry with me for not immediately doing the same. Recently, my child told me that she would be known as a freak among her peers if her father was a tyrant. A tyrant. My heart broke. I love my child. They mean the world to me. I also see a person who is not emotionally mature yet. I see a person pulled by the winds of peer pressure. I see a person asking me not just to recognize new pronouns, but to consent to medical treatments that, as far as I can tell, have unknown long-term effects. I've tried to read as much as I can about this. European countries have pulled back in recent years, again, from what I read, based on a lack of good scientific evidence on benefits or harms of hormone blockers. In England, they started out treating a mix of biological boys and girls, with more boys than girls asking for treatment. Now it's hugely tilted toward biological girls, many of whom have other diagnosed mental health challenges. Your show has chronicled how our kids are hurting, girls in particular. Does that mean they're turning to a kind of social coping, channeling their challenges into gender issues? I truly don't know. I don't think some experts know, which is why the standards keep changing. I think most people want to do right by our kids, the monsters at CPAC notwithstanding. So should I listen to the Scandinavian doctors who point to research showing that if you offer hormone treatments, most children will transition and stay with their new identity. But if you don't, the vast majority of children will grow to find comfort in their biological sex. Or should I listen to the advocates who warn that if I do exactly what my child wants, even if that means medical treatments that have uncertain risks, then I'm putting my child's life on the line if I don't do it. My natural feeling is that puberty is a hard, strange time. My hardest years growing up were in middle school. I hated it, to be honest. The suburban districts can be terrible, but I also made friends and found a community and learned how to handle the bad times. I want my child to learn resilience. I also hate to see them struggle, and I want to take away any discomfort and pain. This email is much too long, so I don't expect you to read it. I admit I'm giving you a pseudonym, but if you do get it, I wonder if your guests think I'm a bad parent or even a bigot for saying no to hormone blockers right now. Thanks for listening. That's David. Hmm. Uh, Reverend, what do you think? Yeah, well, um, David, I, I really want to just um, you know hold space to say that um, I hear you really working to support your child, and I hear you really you know, wanting to be there and to offer them love and to offer your child, um, you know, the the important life-giving and life-affirming gifts of using the appropriate name and pronouns for them. And um, and I also, I hear some of the struggles that I think many parents are having around social media influences, you know, what happens with kids in social settings. Um, you know, what I do want to say is I think that discernment around this doesn't need to happen alone. 
And what I would invite you to do, David, is I would invite you to find, um, you know, a support group perhaps for parents of, of trans kids or gender nonconforming children, um, because those support groups are so key. And there are likely other parents who have done similar discernment uh, that, you, that you're doing that you don't have to do alone. Um, and I think so often there is this mindset that that you might have to have to figure this out by yourself. Um, I would also say, you know, um, that I have seen, um, you know, kids both receiving um, gender affirming care and also mental health care um, as, you know, as part of their uh, healing journey. Um, I've also seen parents who have uh, denied their kids this care. And I guess, you know, to me, what's important is what are you communicating to your child or your reasons? Um, and, you know, is it about like, you know, let's wait and make this decision. Um, you know, with good medical and sound advice and you follow up on that medical and sound advice and give your child the most, you know, the most uh, sound medical advice that they can have to make their decision and to do their own discernment. I would encourage you not to keep some of the research that you're doing to yourself. I'd encourage you to share it with your child and to have this be a place to start conversation. Um, and, you know, I would also say that one of the most healing things that we can do for trans and gender nonconforming children is to believe them and to honor their experience and to give them the tools that they need to live the lives that they, that they feel like they need to live um, and the lives that they, that they have to live. Um, we do know the costs are really high. I mean, I hear you talking about mental health uh, care and for sure, I mean, the, the rates of um, you know, suicide and self-harm behavior amongst uh, trans kids, especially trans kids who do not receive you know, gender affirming care or do not have supportive homes is very high. Um, and so I hear you taking that seriously, and I think that's really key. Um, but, you know, I, I would say continue to do your discernment. I'd say find some support for yourself as a parent. And I'd also really encourage you to share your research with your kid and share that discernment with your kid. The worst thing that I think that a kid can hear is, no, you can't do this because I said so, or no, you can't do this because I'm, I don't trust you to make decisions around your own health care. That's also uh, one that I've heard that's been particularly harmful to some of the youth that I've worked with. Britton Hargers, what do you think? Wow, um, David, thank you for taking that time and um, writing that letter. Um, to Evan. I think that it was amazing the way that you wrote it. I first want to say thank you very much um, for not saying no. I think that's what I heard first and foremost, like all the way down to the end of the letter. Um, David, at the final question was, am I wrong um, for saying not at this time? It wasn't a complete no. So just to, you know, add to what the reference said, you know, like finding that space for you because there are spaces for parents. Um, you're not the only parent going through this. You're not the only parent that has that has those thoughts and concerns. So making sure that while you're trying to support your child, you have um, the same exact support for yourself. Um, this is not just a one-person transition. This is a transition for an entire family. Um, and nine times out of ten, like folks truly know exactly who they are. So listen to them and trust them. Um, I think when it comes for me, I think uh, just when it comes down to that discernment, like allowing um, yourself as a father to remove any of your own biases and actually see um, how protective that truly can be for not only just your child, but yourself and explaining this um, to new people, to, to the world um, and learning to live in light, um, in love. Um, and teaching a new respect, and that's something that we definitely need right now in this time, especially with everything going so crazy with all of the different bans, all the bills being passed across the United States. Um, we kind of need this time for education. And as a father, David, the same resources that, you know, like you're getting your information from, double-cross those with your child and begin to have those open dialogue questions because I think that is what was different in the 80s and 90s compared to now. Um, we need open dialogue questions and not just a mindset of do what I say. Well, and you heard Britton and Reverend Lane May Reed mention um, support groups for parents. Mm -hmm. um, just briefly, Reverend, where w what's the best way to kind of find one? Well, I mean, shockingly, 
at your local church. Um, so I know at least of uh, one uh, parent of um, trans kids support group that meets at uh, First Unitarian at the, you know, my sibling congregation right up the road at, at, on Winton Road. Uh, they're doing some active work there around uh, trans parenting support. And also um, Mary Magdalene over in uh, East Rochester has a parent of, you know, parents of trans kids. Uh, kids and adults uh, support group. So folks getting together regularly to offer support to one another. Um, you know, and those are just the supports that I know from my perspective. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased towards religious communities. But, you know, um, it's it's also possible that there are other ones that exist uh, through, you know, some of our uh, uh, LGBTQ affirming healthcare providers here in, in town. And Dr. Kashandra King, anything you want to add uh, to thoughts on that email? Oh, well, thank you for allowing me to respond um, to that question. These issues that individuals and families face are critically important, and I would just encourage um, that further discernment process um, as already expressed. Um, because at CRCDS, we do offer spaces for students, community members, and faculty and staff to really think critically and discern appropriately towards peace, service, and justice. So I would advocate for that. Um, I also, you know, I spent some time, um, Reverend, this weekend trying to read up and find the latest information myself. Um, you know, because I suppose I could be in David's situation soon, just thinking totally. about, like, you know, right? Um, and so... It was not easy to find, con well, there's almost no consensus. There's a lot of, I think, um, um, you know, when the New York Times tried to write about this in November, Megan Toohey uh, and her, I forget the writers, but they, they, they wanted to know what the current research says or why are European countries sort of pulling back. And um, how do you feel at this moment about um, weighing safety of treatment versus not treating and understanding what that risk entails, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, th I think that's some of the complexity and the nuance here. Um, and, you know, some of the pieces I would preference around that are, you know, uh, what does make safe, what does make a safe environment for a kid? Um, what does make a safe environment for a young person, for a youth? Um, uh, and, uh, certainly, of course, there are, um, you know, possible medical risks is what was, you know, being uh, reported on. Um, however, the risks to um, youth, you know, mental health, well-being, um, those pieces are huge. I mean, I, I work with a lot of um, parents and also grandparents of uh, trans kids. And to hear some of their experience around how gender-affirming care has helped their grandchild come alive, has helped them live, you know, a really full and beautiful life that they could have never imagined for uh, this child that um, that felt really, you know, held back and sort of uh, stunted in some way prior to gender affirming care. I mean, the the rewards of gender affirming care are great, and you know, the concern that I mainly hear is, well, what if they change their mind? What if we go down this road and they change their mind? And what do you say to that? I mean, to me, it's I, um, I would say that that's okay. You know, it's okay for kids to change their mind. That's all right. Um, and I think the discernment is around, you know, what are some of the long-lasting health effects around uh, some of these, uh, you know, medical transitions, which, you know, I don't know. I think there's a really huge emphasis on the medical transition. And uh, quite frankly, you know, I would wonder about what it looks like to really help support kids also in their social transitions and also in some other arenas. And I get too overly focused just solely on the medical transition is the only sign of being trans. You know, as a genderqueer person, um, for me, you know, um, I think there are some ways that uh, that the way that larger society views us is that if only only if you medical transition are you then a real trans person, and that's not true at all, right? That's not true at all. Um, but I think so often the the media focus and the media coverage on medical transition and focusing on bodies and surgeries and um, you know medications and hormone blockers pieces like that really doesn't help us sort of effectively take a a broad scope view around what transition looks like um, and how these are just aids to living your fullest life and living into a more social transition. Um, Derek, I'll take your phone call in just a second. I also, 
what I don't want to be is vague. So let me also just say briefly, mm -hmm. um, when I reference um, studies or, or what we understand about, for example, um, hormone blockers and their effect, um, we are starting to get more information. Um, one of the things that the Times reported on was the National Institutes of Health um, is uh, going to be trying to provide more guidance on this. Back in 2015, four prominent American gender clinics were awarded $7 million to examine the effects of different treatments um, for transgender youth. And the researchers explained the United States have not produced official data on the impact or safety of blockers, mm -hmm. but they do expect to have findings and a report soon on that. I also don't want people like envisioning what it, we're not talking about. So what we are talking about primarily is bone density. We're talking about um, you know the question of if you uh, use certain hormone blockers at kids at certain ages when they're developing or going through puberty, that they may be at risk of significant either bone density or fractures in in the 50s and 60s instead of the much later years, but that is still being developed. That's mm -hmm. primarily what we're talking about. And some of the pushback the Times got was, okay, we'll take that risk if it means, can we affirm who we are and knowing mm -hmm. the mental health challenge and, and the high suicide ideation and everything else. I mean, the risk on one end versus yeah, bone density, possibly some other complications on the other. So I don't think we know for sure. And I think part of the problem that Tui and her colleagues were getting at the Times in November was like, I think from what my, my read, and I'll ask our guest to kind of weigh in on this, um, Reverend, I think the trans community was saying, we're aware that, yep. you know, there's, there's not a perfect solution here, but we're also trying to weigh all of those things, including an immediate feeling mm -hmm. that produces very dangerous situations in the immediate present moment. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. And let, let me also just uh, reflect back to you some of what I'm hearing and some okay, of what yeah. you're sharing this morning, which is that um, research into trans and gender affirming uh, care in this country is wildly underfunded. It needs to be better funded. Um, we we have we are way behind other countries in this because um, you know we have seen this as um, something supplemental to somebody's health care and not central to a person's health care. So you know, I think that's one that's one piece that I respond to a lot, which is like, you know, this is this is vastly under researched. We see so much transphobia and also homophobia in, you know, the healthcare community. Um, and ways that, you know, uh, researchers who work in this, I, their, their research doesn't get funded at the same rates as other people's medical research does. So that's just one thing to keep in mind, I think. And also, um, yeah, I mean, for many of us, we are weighing the, the risks. And um, I also just want to be really clear and kind of careful around ways that we equate uh, mental illness and, and transgender identity, because um, not all trans people have mental health issues. Uh, you know, our, our gender pieces are not responsive to necessarily our mental health issues. Oftentimes what is really difficult is that it can be really stressful being trans. <laughs> and so for many of us, we're, you know, we're receiving everybody else's anxieties, fears, um, you know, the desire for us to be more closeted. Uh, we're, we're on the receiving end of that. And so, you know, gosh, no wonder, no wonder folks are living with, you know, mental illness or, or stress around this or anxiety around this. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to equivocate the two because I think sometimes people will try and chalk it up to, you know, trans identity being a part of somebody having a, a mental illness. And that's just not been my experience. Okay. Britton, you want to add to that? Honestly, no. The Reverend summed it all up. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Um, so let me grab Derek's phone call. Derek's been waiting to jump in. Hi, Derek. Go ahead. Oh, Don. That's not. Oh, that's Don in East Rochester. I'm, I've got the wrong one. Hi, Don. Go ahead. Um, hello. Um, I want to thank you for having this discussion, but I do have a bone to pick with you all. I'm a 70-year-old cisgender gay man, and throughout most of the 50 years that I've been out of the closet, the term queer was a derogatory, hateful, um, negative term to be used. We, we wouldn't use the N-word to describe African Americans. We wouldn't use the B-word to describe women. Why is it and when did it become acceptable for us to use the word queer when talking about LGBT people? When did that become acceptable? It's always been a negative 
term. And I think a lot of people in the LGBT community would agree with me. There was no discussion on uh, the New York Times did an article on it last fall, and one comedian says, I wasn't asked, I didn't give my vote on this. When did it become acceptable, and why did it become acceptable to use the term queer? All right, Don, hang there for a second, if you could. Um, I'll, I'll start in studio, and I'll ask our guests. Uh, Reverend, you want to start? Sure. Well, Don, thanks so much for the question. I think uh, there are a lot of folks um, in a you know similar uh, generation to you, and also you know who grew up in politi- in certain you know environments and contexts for whom the term queer is very jarring. Um, I know that for me, and I can just speak from an I place. Um, I use uh, the term queer as a reclaiming. Um, and for me, uh, I use the term queer to be uh, much more expansive around uh, gender as well as around sexuality. Um, to me, uh, I'm informed by queer theory, which talks about ways that to queer something is to be both and, uh, and talks about ways that to uh, queer things is to be at odds with the norm. Um, and so, you know, for me, those are the definitions around which I, I engage in this reclaiming. Um, but I will say, I think there is a bit of a generational divide. Um, I, I hear oftentimes also from folks in a similar um, a generation to you, Don, ways that um, folks really um, grieve and are uh, a bit, um, feel as if they've missed out on the opportunity to be trans because when they were young, it wasn't acceptable. Um, and so, you know, um, it always grieves my heart uh, to hear those kinds of stories and, um, you know, I, I try to encourage folks, you know, in the congregation that I'm in or in the community that I'm in, that it's never too late. Um, and it's also never too late for us to learn, you know, sort of new terminology and to adjust and adapt and shift. Um, but I totally, I totally hear you on that. Britton, what do you think? Don, thank you so much for the question. Um, I would say life is ever-changing. Um, I, I, in the, all the work that I do, I hear it all the time. Um, and one thing that the Reverend said is it's generational. Um, me, myself, I use the terminology queer um, because it, 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 it is very expansive for me. I find freedom in it. Um, I think that growing up... Um, Growing up in the LGBTQ plus IA community um, that continues to just grow, I think that it allows this generation to not live um, with barriers. And, you know, like I feel like in previous generations, um, you know, like if you if you said that you were gay, that was specifically set to um, folks who are assigned male at birth. Today, that terminology of gay is so expansive that someone who is a transmasculine person may identify as gay and it's not in a sexual realm. So um, I just feel like it's free and it's expansive. Um, and one thing that you, you used an analogy um, and you said, like, hey, we wouldn't use the N-word. But once upon a time, that word was completely derogatory. And in the black culture, um, it 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 really isn't for us anymore. So it's more like trying to like take the personal weight of it um, off, which I have done. And like I, I I'm thankful to be open and black and queer and free. So for me, it's liberating. It's it's freedom. Um, and I guess the best way to say it is the same way that you use that same analogy. At one point in time, that N-word was horrible. There is a group of people today that don't feel that way, and they live in the liberation that their folks once weren't able to. So I could have only imagined what it felt like to be um, queer back then, and it'd be a very derogatory term. But to now look at the generation use it so freely it's like the chains have been broken off of you even though um it's hard for you to actually see it sometimes Kashandra hmm. uh, king anything you'd like to add i don't have anything to add i i hear the concern in um don's voice as don was sharing um but that is outside of the realm of my particular expertise but i would refer back to my colleagues here um and what they've already shared um I also wanted to ask about something that a couple of listeners have have brought up um, over kind of the different, probably the different conversations we've had in this program. And we've never kind of gotten around to talking about it um, with a thoughtful guest like Reverend Lane May Reed and Britton and Kashandra King. So um, it goes to the question on how we look at gender norms. Mm -hmm. And so often over the years on this program, listeners will share things with me that sound like um, 
we've spent like decades trying to remind ourselves that pink is not a girl's color and that boys can be in the ballet and girls can play football and play with trucks and that doesn't mean anything other than that's what you want to do and that's cool and that's great and um and and then what you see schools teaching there's some interesting nuanced thing and we talk about how we teach kids about issues of gender gender fluidity tra uh, what the whole spectrum that we've been talking about and i'll quote from a piece in the atlantic now they were writing about um, the evanston skokie school district 65 that's a public school system in the chicago suburbs and uh, quoting from the piece now quote one kindergarten lesson calls for teachers to read i am jazz my princess boy and Jack, not Jackie, all books about trans or genderqueer kids. The following day's lesson reads, people who identify as transgender have their own ways of dressing, playing, and acting that might not be what you expect. They might look to you like a boy, but dress and act like a girl. But wait, how does a girl dress and act? The kindergartners have been taught that there are no such thing as boys' toys or girls' toys or boys' clothes and girls' clothes, but then when introducing terms such as trans and non-binary, the school curriculum relies on and arguably reaffirms gender stereotypes. For example, kindergarten students are shown a slide meant to represent a boy, then a girl, and then a non-binary person. Its symbols are silhouettes of stereotypical male outfit, a stereotypical female dress, and a mashup of the two. If you tell five-year-olds that boys can wear dresses and play with dolls just as much as girls, but also that Michael feels like a girl, so from now on he's going to wear dresses and play with dolls, you've undercut the message that normative gender stereotypes are bogus, end quote. Mm -hmm. Reverend, what do you, let me start with you. What do you make of all that? Well, what a, what a fantastic example of the oppression of the gender binary, you know, on so many levels. I mean, I think we're all still trying to figure out how do we, disentangle ourselves from this either or world that we've kind of painted ourselves into. I think the school district is trying to they teach are. appropriate lessons. They sure are. But and they seem to be tripping into the norms, the narrow norms. Totally. Yeah? Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I used to... Uh, I used to be a youth minister and we were talking about how do you, we teach uh, sexuality education programs to kids in churches, like our whole lives program. And I mean, we had to really revisit, like, how do we teach anatomy? You know, how are we teaching, how are we saying that this is a boy's anatomy, this is a girl's anatomy, if we have kids in the same room with us who maybe have anatomy that doesn't match these things yet, you know, yet identify um, as, as trans or, or however. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think we're all still trying to learn how to uh, move our way through this world uh, without having to categorize ourselves as either or, uh, holding on to ways that, uh, for some people, identifying as men or as women is really empowering. Um, and for other folks, uh, you know, not so much. Um, for me, as a, as a genderqueer person, I think sort of being presented as a monolith is hard you know, because it's more complicated than that. Like, um, if you were to show somebody a mashup of a man and a woman and say, this is a non-binary person, or this is a genderqueer person, that's not actually accurate for me and for my experience. Um, so I'd also wonder about, you know, with some of these curricula, like how, who's being consulted in the creation of the curricula? Are trans people being brought in on that? Or is this like just a, a bunch of, um, you know, cisgender people trying to sort of presuppose what what kids need to learn. I, I only ask that in a curious way. I don't know. Um, you know, or, you know, how are there ways to, how are there ways to bring our experience into schools? And then yet again, I think back to some of this legislation right now that would say that um, you can't have uh, drag performers around minors. You can't have, <laughs> you can't have us around your kids anymore. Um, and ways that that actually effectively really harms our children. Um, and, of course, harms us. Britton, how do you see the, the question on sort of gender norms and um, the concern about how that's taught to kids and what that signals and what that means, especially as, as kids start to learn more about themselves and think about, well, you know, I may be biologically female. I like things that stereotypically have been boys' stuff. And what does that mean for me? Thanks, uh, Evan. I think that it really honestly goes back to um, one thing that 
the Reverend was saying, um, who's writing this curriculum? What does the con- what does the consulting look like? What does the team look like? Um, just listening to the conversation, it actually made me think back to my own childhood. Um, what would life have been like for all of us if we were able to go to the bathroom with no gender norms? Mm-hmm. Let's say we're talking about elementary school here, so we're not really talking about folks being unsafe and things like that. But if we were able to walk into a restroom and Everyone's using the same restroom. They're not. They're not separated by genders. Everyone's. We're all children. We're all five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. No matter if there was a urinal or a toilet seat, a stall, we're going to find and use whatever makes us comfortable. And I think that that's the misconception, like allowing folks to live in their own ability and not it being created. So when we're talking about gender norms, if we're going to break gender norms, we can't have binary folks trying to (laughs) break those norms it's not going to happen like that like you need all folks sitting at a table and i think that it also goes back to um one of the main reasons that we're here like that spiritual part like when we when we begin to just let folks live and what they are folks can literally stand up and say who they are and if you just added that spiritual part, like it's more motivation, it's more empowerment to just be who you are. And the thing is, like, if we're going to write curriculums, um, allow the youth of this generation to teach us what to do. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's probably an undercurrent in the Atlantic piece of sort of maybe challenging this idea or, or implying that kids are being told, well, if you are biologically female and you like stereotypically boy stuff, maybe you are a boy. Are they, are they hearing that message versus are they intuiting that and, and finding that path and that journey on their own? If it's the former, I think it does go against the progress of undercutting gender norms that we forced. Gr- you know, pink is a girl's color and boys play with trucks, all that stuff. Um, but the, is that the reality? How are most kids ending up on that path? And I think David's email implies he's concerned for his child that two people in his child's friend group transition and within months his child was transitioning and and he was questioning like okay what's the genesis of this like is this innate like is this or is this affected by pressure on the outside Mm -hmm. and i like reverend how do you kind of grapple with that stuff well, I mean, I don't think that any of us are formed, you know, on our own. And none of us are, are formed and become who we are without friendship groups, without societal influence, without folks around us. Um, I know for me, that as a very young a genderqueer person, I was isolated and I felt like nobody else was like me. And so, you know, how healing is it? To, I, would, I would have loved to go to school and to hear that perhaps other kids were like me or to hear that there were other people out there like me um, rather than you know the bullying and the shaming and the pieces that I received around my gender which actually I talk about in uh, Britain's uh, new documentary Remember Me Now um, where you know as a kid I had a very genderqueer expression but it was a lot of society's anxiety and pressure on me where I felt like I had to conform to uh, you know what it means to be um, you know a woman or female which I identified at the time because I didn't really have good language otherwise. I would have loved to have had friends that were like me. And um, it's one of the joys of my adult life, for sure, is to have other people, to know that I'm not alone, and to have other people uh, who are who are like me. Um, so I, th- I think that pressure actually can go a variety of ways. And, you know, I think about ways that so many, um, you know, so many of us are socialized to be in a particular body size. Uh, and, you know, ways that a lot of uh, those of us who are socialized as women are told that we have to be you know, super, super, super thin in order to be attractive, to be loved, to be lovable, and how, um, you know, damaging that is. But I don't hear us talking about that at all. You know, I hear us talking about ways that children are being groomed, and I'm using hand air quotes now, children are being groomed uh, to be, you know, trans or whatever, but we're not talking about... um, you know, ways that children are groomed into eating disorders or ways that children are, ways that children are groomed into, you know, the gender binary, really, uh, choosing a side, choosing one or the other. For you, mm-hmm. growing up, seeing a conversation in school, a friend who was genderqueer would not have necessarily been a contagion situation where you no. you get pulled in that direction. It would have allowed you to, to kind of identify mm-hmm. 
who you are. Yeah, yeah. To early. not live with a shameful secret for the yeah. next, yeah. you know, yeah, thirty-seven years <laughs> would have been really great, actually. Yeah. Um, and Britain, run out of time. Some final thoughts from you on that too. Um, I just want to like if David is listening, my only question is, um, you know, like what have you seen different in your child since being around these two friends um, with being open with their identity, having open conversations with you? Like what have you seen within your own child? And then you can make your own decision based on what you've seen, whether this is influential in a negative way or really allowing your child to be free. That's it. And if, and also, hey, uh, the Remember Me Now documentary that features so many people in our own very area, uh, transgender, uh, masculine folks, transgender, feminine folks, gender queer folks, like just diversity. YouTube Remember Me Now, like it's out and we're here and like we need these spaces. We need these conversations because there are people like Michael Knowles that are making comments that even make it more dangerous, not only for people like myself, but David, your child. Um, Britton, briefly, where can people find more of your work? I, I know you're, um, you know, you're founder of Next Generation Men of Transition. What do you want people to know about um, the kind of work you do in the community? Hey, if you are someone who is transgender diverse, uh, if you are a family member, a friend, and you just, you're just you looking for a research, a resource, please Google Next Generation Men of Transition. Um, you can find me everywhere. We ha also, like I said, just have a brand new documentary that came out that definitely explains. There is an amazing portion that asks folks like, hey, did you ever even know these things about yourself before? Did you ever see yourself here before? And so many people enter that question. Um LGBTQ plus folks are the assets to the freedom of this country. Like, stand in it and make sure that, like, you're not only just protecting adults, but children, too. And Reverend Lane May Reed and Kishandra, the, the event tomorrow open to the public? Open to the public, 5.30 uh, p.m. to six uh, to 7 uh, online uh, through the, the uh, CRCDS website. And Britton uh, Hargers will be the respondent to my lecture. So 5.30 tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, CRCDS, it's... Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School's website for more information on uh, the lecture from Reverend Lane May Reed. It is the Christian Faith and LGBTQ Plus Experience Lecture. Yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having Our us. Our thanks to Dr. <laughs> Shendra King from Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And Britton Hargers, thank you very much, Britton. No problem. Thank you very much, Evan. From the whole team at Connections, thank you for listening. We're back with you tomorrow on member-supported public radio.